what we see in these verses, verses 17 through 23, really is faith, Daniel's faith in God's wisdom and power. Daniel believed that God possesses all wisdom and power, and therefore he responded within his circumstances with faith in God's power and wisdom. And he did that by promising the king that God would give him the answer. And he did that, and he demonstrated that by praying in faith to God. And so what I want to look at today is three responses of faith to God's wisdom and power. I want to see how or what Daniel understood about God, about God's wisdom and power, and then show us how he responded in faith to God's wisdom and power. So first of all, we are to respond to God's wisdom and power with faith, praying for God's wisdom and power. Praying for God's wisdom and power. And he did this by petitioning God and then by praising God. Notice Daniel believed. Notice Daniel believed in God's power and wisdom. And so he responded in prayer. Daniel was confident that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And God rules according to his wisdom and by his power. And it was really in this reality that God holds the corner market on all power and all wisdom that he therefore prayed to God. And God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. It's not just that he possesses it, though. It's not just something that he owns. It's actually who he is. God is power. God is wisdom. And therefore, all wisdom is sourced in him. Since God is all wisdom, all wisdom is sourced in him. All wisdom comes from him. Since God is all power, all power is sourced in him. All, all power comes from him, right? We have these lights on stage, TVs and stuff. We recognize that the power for those lights comes from somewhere else, right? We recognize that there's a company that had the wisdom to be able to get that power to us. And so we recognize that there is, there is an outside source. There's an ultimate source for power somewhere else. There's another entity. There's another group of people, a company, that has given wisdom to us to be able to access this. And in a similar way, we recognize that there's an outside power. There's an outside wisdom outside of, our, outside of ourselves, and that is God. And it's not just that God is, is the one who gives us wisdom and gives us power. It's that he actually is the source of that. He, he could, you could say it this way. He is the nuclear power plant, right? I mean, he is the power. He is the wisdom. And therefore, we go to him and seek that wisdom for ourselves. Wisdom really is the ability to take knowledge and to skillfully apply that to your life. So God has all knowledge. He's omniscient. And God is able to take all of his knowledge that he knows, he knows everything, and skillfully use that to work in your life for your good. God is all-powerful. We call that omnipresent, which means he directs his power, or I should say he directs, his power directs all things and at all times in every place for the purposes, for his purposes and for his glory. So he uses his power to sovereignly oversee all things for his purposes, for his glory, and ultimately even for our own good. 
And so I want, to, I want you to notice this. Look in verse 18. Notice this, this belief that he had in God's wisdom and power. Verse 18. And Daniel told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So first notice that he actually recognized that God could give him. He had the ability to tell him the dream and the wisdom to be able to do that. Verse 19 we see that actually God does that. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. So God demonstrated his wisdom and power by, by fulfilling the request that Daniel had. And then look at verse 20. Daniel answered, and he responds to God's giving him this wisdom and power with praise. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. And then what he does is Daniel goes through these next verses and praises God. And he does, does so by demonstrating how God's wisdom and power works. And so he says in verse 21, he changes the times and the seasons. Now you might read that. It might be easy to gloss over that and just say, oh, that's kind of a neat thing God does. But for Daniel, this would have been pretty significant. He's just spent three years of training in the, in the school of the wise men and the Chaldeans. They were well-versed in the constellations, in the planetary movements. At this time, they recognized 18 different constellations. They were able to track the planets. They, were able, they had named stars. Babylonians used the planetary movements to predict the future so they could know when to plant their crops and when to harvest their crops. So Daniel has just graduated from from Wise Man University, right? Three-year degree, master's degree. So he understands the, the heavens and the times and the seasons. Of course, the Babylonians, they believe that many of those planets were gods, and they believed in some pretty crazy things, some hocus-pocus about all that. Daniel didn't believe that, but Daniel understood the intricacies of the planetary movements, and he understood that God designed all that by his wisdom. And so here you can see that Daniel has faith that God is actually the one who has wisdom. He designed all that, and God is all-powerful. He providentially operates all the heavens. And then verse 21, he says, he changes the times and season, and he removes kings and he sets up kings. So God, God's wisdom here is that he decides what's going to happen in history. right? He puts kings in place. He takes kings down. And these are kind of the things that we look at and we maybe scratch our heads and wonder, well, why does God you know, put certain kings up? Why does God make certain presidents president, right? I mean, you see what's going on in China. Why does God put that, allow that to happen? Like, why is God doing that over there? What's happening? I mean, we look at something like this. He removes kings. He sets up kings. So by his wisdom, he says this is what is best. By his power, he allows this. And he actually doesn't just allow it. He does these things. He's working within history. Why does he do that? What do you think the answer to that is? What's the answer to that? Think about that. I, I, I'm going to say, here's the most simple answer, and then we'll get more complex. I think simply, we don't know. <laughs> right? We don't know why 
God does some of the things he does within history. Sometimes preachers get on TV and, you know, there's a big hurricane or something's happening and they interview them. Why is God doing this? And, you know, they authoritatively, authoritatively speak for God. Well, this, this is what's happening. This is why. I think you got to be careful about that, right? Because God's not speaking to you, no matter what they say. As we talked about last week, you know, some of those people say God speaks to them and they declare who's going to be the next president, and they're wrong. So, But I would say this, sometimes we can see maybe some reasons why God is doing that within history as we're living it. Sometimes we can look back and we can see, wow, look at this is what God did. So there are times where we can, we might be able to see, well, this is maybe why God did this. I think probably at the end of time when we're in glory, we'll have a great history class. And I believe we'll go through history. And then we'll be able to see that God did all things for his glory and for our good. And I think that's going to be a great worship service as well. So if you, don't, if you like history classes, or if you don't like history classes, either way, that's going to be a, a time of worshiping the Lord. I like how one or how some historians make a play on the word history. They say history is his story. I think that's a great way to think about history. Sometimes when we're in the middle of a difficulty, a trial, or just even within the history of our world, we don't understand why God does what he does. I read a story this past week from Eternal Perspectives Ministry run by Randy Alcorn. So he told a story of a missionary couple. In 1921, this missionary couple moved from Sweden to Africa, to the Congo. It was a time when most of Congo was not reached, was unreached. There were uh, still many tribes that had never been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So David and uh, uh, Siva flood, went with another couple, and they built these mud huts, and they lived in them, and they lived the rugged African life. And while they were there, they were trying to reach these unreached people groups around them, but the people shunned them. The local tribes wouldn't have anything to do with them. The only thing they would do is send us a boy over to them to be able to sell eggs and, and chickens and stuff. Other than that, they had nothing to do with them. Then they also contracted malaria, and they would get that, get better, get it, get better. And if you've ever known someone that has had malaria, it is not um, a pretty picture, and it's very difficult to overcome. Their partners quit because they were so discouraged and left them, kind of betrayed them. Siva got pregnant and had a baby, and with 17 day, days later, she died. Not the baby, but Siva died. So here David found himself all alone. He had a little baby in his arms living in a mud hut in Africa, and he couldn't see any blessings around him. I guess the only thing was this, this boy that came, he was able to lead him to Christ, which was pretty neat. But in one little boy, you know, he wasn't even of age. And so he got angry at the Lord. So much so that he gave his little baby girl away. Her name was Aggie. Gave her away to one of the missionary couples there. And he says, I'm going back to Sweden. Went back to Sweden, got remarried, had a couple kids, and basically lived a life as an atheist as probably an agnostic, just angry at the Lord. Aggie was taken back to America eventually through different means. She was adopted by a Christian family in South Dakota. 
When she became an adult, she was becoming curious about her birth parents, and so she learned some history on them. And, and one day she read an article in a Swedish uh, magazine. It's a Christian magazine. And it had a picture of a man on there. And he was a grown man, an adult. Um, and he told a story about when he was a little boy. And there was a missionary couple that came from Sweden to Christ. And he got saved. And he was able to leave, lead his whole village to Christ. 600 people in his village came to Christ. And as this Aggie, as an adult, read this story, she recognized that her parent, her mom did not die, her biological mom did not die in vain. But God actually used that little boy to lead many people to Christ. I think those are the kind of stories that we'll hear in heaven. I think from our perspective, sometimes we can see things and we can go, well, that's really bad. Look at all the bad things happen. And you can be like, like her biological dad, David, did. You can be like, well, I don't want anything to do with God. Look what God's doing. This is terrible. But actually, God has a different perspective. And sometimes he lets us see that. And I think in glory, we'll definitely be able to praise him for that. So God is the one who sets up kings. God is the one who oversees history by his power and wisdom. Second Chronicles says, You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. There is no accident in the plans of God. Even consider Daniel. Here's Daniel as a young captive. And he's had some pretty terrible things happen to him, hasn't he? But yet he had faith that God placed him there for his purposes. He believed God was wise and God was powerful. And so therefore he trusted God within his circumstances. And you know what? God worked by his wisdom and by his power. God used King Nebuchadnezzar to discipline God's people, and so some people turned back to him. That's a good thing. God directed King Nebuchadnezzar to protect God's people, and through Daniel, God was able to tell his people what their future was, and for us, that there would be a Messiah. God worked according to his power and wisdom in the life of Daniel. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And when we consider God's wisdom and power, we must stand in awe of God. Even though we don't understand why everything's happening, we say, God, you are wise and you are powerful. And therefore, how do we respond to that? Well, we should respond in prayer. Look down in verse number 21. In the middle of the verse says, that Daniel respond in pray, responded in prayer and in praise. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us, the king's matter. Isn't it interesting that Daniel attributed God's answer to the prayers of those men? Look at the end there, verse number 23. You have made known to who? I thought he was the only one that got the vision. 
So what's Daniel saying here? He's saying that God answers the prayers of his saints when they gather together to pray. What you see here is he's saying, he's not saying there's something special that happened to me. He's saying, we prayed, God answered. Praise be to God that he answers prayer. Do you believe that God answers prayer? When is the last time, when is the last time that you gathered with God's people to pray? Right? If, do you believe God answered prayer? If you say in your mind, yes, I believe that, then the next question is, well, do you pray? I pray for my food, Pastor Ben. No. I, I'm talking about like there's some major burdens in your life, and you're like, I need to pray. I need to get with people, and I need to pray. I think that our lack of prayer probably shows what we truly believe. Do you really believe that God answers prayer? Praying together as God's church must be a priority for each one of us. Right? Do we believe that? Praying together as God's church must be be a priority for each one of us. These, these ladies this Tuesday have um, a ladies' Bible study, and these ladies come, they study the Bible, and they pray. That's such an important thing for our church. Ladies, you need to be gathering with each other to pray. And if you haven't done that in a while, guess what? It's free. You can come Tuesday night. You can pray with these ladies. And, I, and why do you do it? Well, it's because I'm supposed to do it, or, or I want to have some good coffee. I don't think we really have the greatest coffee. So those aren't probably the best reasons. I really need to be with God's people. I need to pray. Yesterday morning, we had our uh, regular second uh, Saturday of the month gathering for the men to pray. I mean, how do, do we prioritize those kind of things? Do we look at that and be like, okay, my week, I have this, this, and this. Oh, look at that. There's prayer on Saturday morning. I have to go to that. I need that. Prayer with God's people is commanded and it's needed. Why do you think Daniel believed that God would give him an answer? I mean, think of how bold that, that was for Daniel to go before the king and say, God will give me an answer. I mean, we have no indication that God actually told him he would give him an answer. Why did Daniel believe that God would give him an answer? What do you think that is? You know why I think it is? I think he believed that God answers prayer. I think he believed that if he got on his knees before God, that he could cry out to God for mercy and God would give it to him. He actually believed that God works through prayer. And if we really believed that God worked through prayer, what would we do? We would pray. I mean, many Christians are trying to change the world right now, right? They're, they're holding signs. They're on Facebook and social media, and they're posting up memes and all this. And I'm going to change the world through memes. Have you tried changing the world through prayer? I mean, have you tried that? Have we tried that as the church of Jesus Christ? Like we see our city, we want them to come to Christ, and so even we give money to things so that the gospel can go out. But have, have we tried praying? We can be consumed by media. We can complain about what's happening in our country. We can complain about what's happening in our families. We can complain about what's happening in a lot of different areas of life. But how many times do we actually decide that, therefore, we're going to pray? If you really want God to work, what do you think you should do? 
we should pray. And so Daniel prayed. God answered. So our response to the belief that God is all-powerful and God has all wisdom is that we pray to him and say, God, please, I need your wisdom. I need your power. God, please work in this situation. And we trust that he therefore will. Then next, the second response of faith to God's power and wisdom is to be humble under his power and with his wisdom. In that prayer meeting, Daniel received a vision. Again, think of the excitement that they would have when that took place. And what's the first thing Daniel does? I mean, he turns to his friends. I, God told me. Praise God, right? What's the first thing he does? Dude, we might get killed here pretty quickly. We got to go tell the king, right? So he did. You know what's interesting? What does he do? He gets on his knees before the Lord and he praises God. It's interesting. I, don't, I think that's something we don't want to miss right there is that sometimes we consider some things to be so urgent in life that I have to just go do that, right? We get up in the morning and we think about our lives. And we're like, my life is so busy. You know, I got so many things going on today. You got this, this, and this, and this. I mean, how many of us have been in a situation where it's like, yeah, you're going to get your head cut off pretty soon. That's pretty urgent. I mean, don't you think he could have said, maybe I'll wait to praise God when I get back. You know, <laughs> After everything works out, then I'll get on my knees. But actually what he does here is he takes time to praise God and then in verse 24, you see Daniel going to Arioch. Verse 24 says, therefore, Daniel went to, into Arioch. And notice, it doesn't say how quickly he did it. It's just like he walks there. <laughs> he walks into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring, them, uh, bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king. And what does it say after that? In haste. I mean, notice, Arioch believed Daniel, which shows the character of Daniel. And he believed him so much that when Daniel came in, I can imagine these guys are all in there. You know, they have their swords. You know, maybe they're sharpening their swords, getting ready to chop up some heads the next day. And Daniel comes in and he says, I know the interpretation. God has revealed it to me. And this guy's like, oh, Really? And so he actually is the one who runs the king. Like, he's the one in a hurry. Why is that, you think? Well, he believed Daniel so much that he wanted to get some credit himself. In fact, look at verse 25. That's what it says. Then Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Well, that's a lie, right? He didn't find him. But, you know, if you're in any kind of secular employment, you probably heard that one a lot of times. People taking credit for things that they didn't really do. That's how the world works. Because how it works is anything I can do to be exalted, anything I can do to exalt myself. And so verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now stop right there and think about it. Be honest. How would you respond to that? I mean, you're a captive, you're 18 years old. The king has basically said, you're going to become a multimillionaire if you give him the answer. You got the answer. And the king says, are you able to make known the dream to me? I, mean, I can imagine that there was a little bit of 
maybe pride that was speaking to Daniel's heart, be like, dude, now's the time to step up and take credit for this, right? I mean, I can imagine his heart was tempted to boast. You know, what would boasting pride look like? Maybe he would say something like, yeah, that's, that's me, king. I got the answer. But he doesn't do that. Or maybe he would have been tempted to have pious pride. You know, it's like, well, king, I did initiate an all-night prayer meeting, and we had faith in God. So, yes, I have the answer. Right? Maybe if he was, you know, super cool, he had some, you know, ripped jeans or something, and he was like, had some super cool hair, you know, put himself on, on YouTube to tell everyone how much faith he had, right? Or maybe ethnic pride would have said something like, well, I'm a Jew, God's chosen people, so of course I have the answer for you. And my point is, that's how we think, isn't it? That's how we're tempted, right? If, if someone congratulates you on something or gives you credit for something, you're like, you, we are naturally tempted to go, yeah, it's true. That's me. Or if someone doesn't give us a compliment that we think we deserve, it's kind of like, oh, what about me? You know? We want to put ourselves on display, which is pride. That really is a good definition for pride. Pride is putting yourself on display. But what is humility or godly humility? It's putting God on display. Why is that? Because you believe that any wisdom you have and any power you have comes from God, right? So if God is the one who has all power and all wisdom and any wisdom you have and any power you have has come from him, then what happens when something comes up? You say, oh, just a second. Let me put God on display. Of course, we're tempted to exalt ourselves. The reality is we think much of ourselves. We think much of our own wisdom. We think much of our own power. If you were to ask the average person or maybe if I were to ask you, what does God think about you? The average American will just come back and go, well, I think God thinks I'm a pretty good person. Like, I try to be a good person, and, you know, I do good things. I do my best. But that response, that way of thinking is really a a way of thinking that is prideful. It, It displays a person who says that I'm good enough for God. My wisdom, my power is good enough for the Lord. It's the voice of pride speaking. And if you think, if you think that your works and your life and your quote-unquote righteousness can gain you something before God, then your faith is in yourself and your heart is full of pride. And I can say confidently based upon God's word that you are not right with God. You are not forgiven of your sins before God. You have no hope for eternal life. The Bible says, 2 Timothy 1.9, God, he's the one who saves. God saved us and called us to his holy calling. A person is made holy by God. He's saved by God, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. His purpose is, is according to his wisdom. It's that God has a way of salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. His wisdom decided to send Jesus to this world to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, cross, to be resurrected. God's wisdom says that is the way of salvation. And his grace is his power that saves you and cleanses you and forgives you. 
And only God's purposes and grace, only God's wisdom and power can truly save us. And so the Bible says if you turn from trusting your own wisdom and your own power and say, it's only Jesus, only Jesus' wisdom, only Jesus' power can save me, the Bible says he will save you. He will. And really the Christian life is continually living this kind of life of humility before God recognizing that any wisdom I have comes from you, so I'm going to go to the Word, and I'm going to look for wisdom from God. And any power I have comes from His Holy Spirit, so I'm going to go in prayer and ask God to give me strength. And so you see this in the life of Daniel. In fact, look at verse 26. Notice how Daniel responds with this humility. Verse 26, the Bible says, The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Good thing it didn't end right there, right? But no, his first answer was not, I can or even men can, but what? Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Let me put God on display. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days? Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, the future. He who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. I'm nothing special. I'm like every other person in this planet but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel's reply is all about God. And let's end with this last point. Our response should be to trust his word speaks with power and wisdom. Look at verse 31. Daniel tells the king his dream. And so I want you to imagine this is a dream that he had, right? And so this is a reoccurring, I mean, frankly, nightmare if you don't know what it means. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. So here's this image that, you know, it stretches to the sky. The image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, you can't even really look at it, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold, all together, in other words, the whole thing, were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, like this dust that just went away. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, reading that right there, that would be hard to understand what it means. And if you're King Nebuchadnezzar, it might be a little scary to have a rock come out of heaven and destroy an image that maybe looked a little bit like him. But notice Daniel got every detail right he got every detail right. So he's a true prophet, isn't he? As I said last week, there's no place in Scripture where we are to expect to have dreams or visions from God. 
There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us how to interpret dreams or visions from God. In our day-to-day, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, says that God spoke in the past in those ways to prophet, prophets, but today he's speaking through Jesus Christ. And so there were these times, though, in history, as we look through redemptive history, there were these times where God spoke in visions and dreams, very clearly revealed his plans for that next part of, of redemptive history. So the question then comes, if that's what, how God uses dreams and visions, then what's so special about what's happening right now? Like, why is, is God speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar and then later on Daniel during this time? This is the year 602 BC when he would have received this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar. What, what was happening at this time? Well, let's look at a timeline here, okay? It's a little history lesson for us. It's not going to be as wonderful as a history lesson in heaven, but here we go. In 1446 BC, Israel became a theocracy, right? You had the giving of the law, Moses, then there's the nation of Israel, and they were to submit to God as their king. So for 844 years, that was to be the case. They didn't always do that, but God wanted to um, have them obey him like that. 605, really, Israel's kingdom comes to an end. But it's not necessarily completely ended. It's actually put on pause. And then there was this time of Gentile rule, King Nebuchadnezzar, and then we're going to see some other things in a second. And so what we see here is that God puts the nation of Israel on pause, but he promises them there's going to be a future for national Israel. So yes, a couple years, three years before that, I said national Israel is done, but there's going to be a pausing period, and then there's going to be a national Israel in the future. So what God's doing here is he's saying, hey, Israel, yes, there's going to be a, a time of pausing now, but God actually is still going to use you in the future. In fact, think about Paul, and when he wrote in Romans 11, he said, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people from whom he foreknew. So some people get in their minds or they think theologically that, okay, the church is the new Israel. So there's never going to be an Israel again. Now we are the new Israel. But actually, Paul said, well, there is a church, right? I mean, he preached and wrote books about it. But he also said, actually, there's still a national Israel. In fact, I am a part of that national Israel. And someday God will restore to Israel a kingdom and the promises. So what we see here in the book of Daniel is he's saying, listen, there's going to be a time of the time of Gentiles, and there's going to be a time when God will restore the kingdom to Israel. In fact, you see that with even how the book is laid out. Remember I said a couple weeks ago that chapter 1 of Daniel is written in Hebrew, and then chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Well, Aramaic was the common language of the Gentiles or people who are non-Jews. And then chapters 8 through 12 is written in Hebrew. What's interesting is chapter 2 through 7 speaks of these Gentile nations, and then 8 through 12 speak of how God will work through the Jewish nation. In fact, Jesus, when he talked about this, Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there's this time where the Gentiles, by the way, it's all of us, if you're not Jewish, that's, there's this time of the Gentiles having kingdoms and ruling on this earth, 
But there's going to be a time when that's going to be over. And when, when is that going to be over? At the second coming of Christ. And so um, Jesus says, and then they will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So that time of the Gentiles will end when Christ comes back at his second coming. Paul, again, in Romans chapter 11, he said there's this par partial hardening of the hearts of Israel. In other words, some Israelis, some Jewish people will come to faith in Christ. And that's what you see in the New Testament. Some won't come to faith in Christ. But there will be a time when the time of the Gentiles is over where all Jewish people will come to Christ. And so he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. So that's national Israel. All of them will be saved. Now, the question you have to ask when you read something like this, is this true? Do you believe this is true? Well, we believe the Bible. We believe it's inspired. It's inerrant. So yes, to deliver, Jesus will come from Zion. So this is the second coming. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be uh, my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he will restore the covenant and fulfill the promises that he has not yet fulfilled. So one last text in Daniel chapter 8. He says, Daniel says, at the latter end of their kingdom, that's the time of the Gentiles ending, when the transgressions have reached their limit. In other words, things will get worse and worse. There'll be a time, and now we're in the time of the Gentiles, it'll get so bad, and God will say, okay, it's reached fulfillment, I'm done with it, <laughs> and it's done, and Christ will therefore end it all, and he'll set up a kingdom on this earth. Now, do you think we're there yet? No, we're not there yet, but you think we're almost there? I mean, it's getting pretty close, right? You think about technology. Technology is making our lives easier, but is it making us better people? No. I mean, it's making us worse, isn't it? I mean, you look at this world, you see what's happening in these different countries, you see what's happening in people's lives, what you're able to look at, what you're able to do, what the governments are able to do. The point is, is that there will be an increased depravity in our world and God will eventually say, that's enough. The time of the Gentiles is over. So look down in verse 36. So this is the dream. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this time of the Gentiles. We'll try to buzz through this so that we don't spend too much time here. If you have any specific questions, we can talk about it maybe more afterwards. This is the dream, verse 36. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven. In other words, he's saying, you know, your rule is over uh, a vast empire here. You are the head of gold. So he represents this first kingdom. And if you have a handout, you actually can see this. I have this on the Screen up here, too. You can see that he's the first kingdom, so he's the head of gold. There's another kingdom in verse 39, inferior to yours. Probably it's inferior in that King Nebuchadnezzar had this supreme power and peace, and the other kingdoms did not. They were fractured in many ways. And so you can see the dates on that there. That next kingdom is the Medo-Persian Empire, and they conquer the Babylonian Empire. Then the Greek Empire came to power, and they are represented by bronze, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that 
uh, crushes. It shall break and crush these things. So there's a fourth empire. And this fourth empire is the Roman Empire. This is the empire uh, that defeated the Greek Empire. So you see these successive empires that overtake each other. Now you might look at this and be like, oh, I worry, Pastor Ben, this is real boring. It's like, seriously. But you know what's interesting about this? This wasn't history class for, for Daniel. This is prophecy class. He's actually predicting the future. He, he saw or he was able to know all these things 600 years before Christ, right? In fact, if you look over in Daniel chapter, I think it's Daniel chapter 8, he actually mentions by name the Greek empire before it was even a possibility. And so Daniel is actually saying, here are things that are, are going to happen. So which is pretty remarkable. And look in verse 41, as you saw the feet and the toes and Part, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. And so what you see here from ver verse 41 through verse 43 is speaking of this kingdom that's going to be somewhat, it's going to look Roman, there's going to be some iron in it, but also some instability. And so my belief is that there's, there's another kingdom, this is a future kingdom that will come. And then there's a supernatural event, right? There's this rock that is supernatural, it's, it's cut out of stone, made without hands, and this represents Jesus Christ. And it comes, and it destroys all of the nations. So it doesn't destroy the bottom nation. It actually destroys the whole statue. In fact, you can see that in verse 34. It's all broken. Verse 35, all together were broken. In fact, look down in verse 44. The Bible says, in those days, I'm sorry, in the days of those kings, so of the days of those Gentiles, and so not all of them are alive. It's saying that in the days of the Gentiles, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. I just want you to notice a couple things about this kingdom. First of all, God himself is the one who sets up this kingdom. So this is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ. Also notice in this kingdom in verse 44, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. So this is the last kingdom. Like, all the human kingdoms are done. There's no more kingdoms after this. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, this, is, this must be speaking of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came to this earth, you know, and he set up a spiritual kingdom, right? He defeated Satan and sin on the cross, and, and he defeated the, the powers of darkness, and those who trust in him can be in his spiritual kingdom. And the answer to that is, Definitely, Jesus did set up a spiritual kingdom. But when he left, he went back to heaven to sit in the right hand of the Father. The Roman Empire stayed around for another 400 years. We're still having Gentile nations ruling, right? So this has not been fulfilled. In other words, that Jesus came and that kingdom was set up, a spiritual kingdom, but all these Gentile kingdoms kept going on. So this was not fulfilled. So therefore, there must be another kingdom coming at some point in the future that Christ will set up, that will therefore be the end of all the other kingdoms. In, in fact, notice also it says, it shall break, in verse 44, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. That's pretty significant right there. They're all going to come to an end. Did they all come to an end in 33 AD? No, they didn't, right? And so, therefore, we're speaking of something that's happening in the future, something that's still to come. The kingdoms of the Gentiles will be over after this happens, and this kingdom will stand forever. And then look at verse 45. And just as you saw the stone was cut out from a mountain 
by no human hand. In other words, it's a supernatural thing or person. It's Jesus Christ. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. Now, there's a lot of different views on texts like this and a lot of different views on eschatology. I'm just going to say, first of all, good men differ and women differ. Like Different people can have different interpretations, and that's um, understandable. I would say how you view this text doesn't depend upon your eschatology or your view of last things, okay? Sometimes people look at it and say, oh, well, what's your view on eschatology? That's going to determine this. It's actually not. What's going to determine how you view this passage is, you know what? How you interpret scripture. If you take a normal uh, approach to interpreting scripture, you're going to come out with what I believe is my conclusion because I'm just saying, what is the history? What is the culture? What is the language of the, that the book was written in, and this is in Aramaic here. What, is, what, is, what do the other texts say? What's the normal reading of a text like this? Like I look at Daniel and I interpret it the same way I interpret Ephesians. Right? There be, should, should be no difference in how I interpret Ephesians than how I interpret Daniel. It's a normal approach. And if you take a normal approach like that, then you'll come to the conclusion, I think, that you'll say, oh yeah, there's something about this that draws us to the conclusion that there's a kingdom that Christ will set up. There'll be a Jewish kingdom someday, and it will end all the other Gentile kingdoms. In fact, you see this, and I'm not going to go through all the text, but just let me throw one up. That is, even the disciples believe this. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they come together and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to set up the kingdom now? Is that what's going to happen? And he says, hey, listen, you know, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. In other words, this is the time of the Gentiles, you know, that's going to come. Just do what I've called you to do. So I think we can thus conclude this, that Christ will come back. When he comes back, he will come to Jerusalem with his holy ones. He will end all Gentile kingdoms, and he will rule a spiritual but also a physical kingdom, and he will rule as the king. Let's go through two texts just to show this to you, and then we'll conclude Revelation 19 says, Jesus Christ will strike down the nations. He will rule them with the rod of iron. And then Revelation 20, if you read that, there he is. There's the rule of Christ on this earth. And then if you look at places like Zechariah, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Well, has he done that yet? No, he hasn't done that yet, right? And the Lord will be the king over all the earth. And, all, and on that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. So there's things that we see in the Old Testament and even New Testament that have not taken place yet and we believe will take place in the future. And my point is this, to come back to this, is when we see God's word and we see these specific, really spectacular fulfillments of scripture, what should our response be? When we see God's wisdom and his power in prophecy, I think it should help us, encourage us to trust the word of God. Right. If you, if you want to know if you can trust God's word, study Daniel. Study how God spoke by his wisdom and worked by his power. These texts right here drive people crazy, those, those who don't believe in the word of God. If you don't believe the Bible is inspired by God and it's accurate, you go to texts like this and it, they can't believe it. They try to say, oh, well, maybe Daniel, or maybe Daniel didn't write it. Maybe it was written in like, 150, you know, maybe it was written 100, year, 100 to 150 years before Christ. 
know? And so they try to explain it away like that. But the problem is, is that there's too many difficulties with that. I don't have time to go into that, to that this morning. I'll just conclude with this. Daniel 2, look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. I mean, think about that. Young, this young guy getting all this. Praise God. And the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now he's the boss. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel trusted. He believed in the power and the wisdom of God. And therefore, he responded in prayer and humility and faith in the word of God. I told you about David fled at the very beginning or in the middle. I just want to conclude that story. His wife had died, buried her over in the Congo. He went back to Sweden, got married, had a couple more children. But after that, he decided that he's going to have nothing to do with God. And anytime anyone mentioned the name God or anything about God, he went into a rage. Aggie, his daughter that he gave away, he had no contact with her at all. She was married and had a couple kids. And on her 25th anniversary of her marriage, her husband decided to take her to Sweden to visit her biological father. Her dad was in his late 70s, and um, he was not doing well. Of course, she didn't know that, but she wanted to go visit him and, and see him. She knew he was alive. And so she went over to visit him, and when she saw the family, you know, they, of course, they were excited to see her, and, but he was in the back room, and they said, just whatever you do, just don't mention the name God. She, you know, we know you're a devoted Christian, but <laughs> she, he's not about that, and he's given up on God a long time ago. Of course, they weren't Christians either. And so, uh, so she said, you know, okay. And so she went back to the back room and saw him there, and he turned around and looked at her, and, and she says, Papa. And he started crying. He goes, Aggie, I didn't, I didn't want to give you away. I didn't want to give you away. And she said, Papa, do you know what God did? You led that little boy to Christ. He became a pastor. He led, he led 600 people in his village to Christ. Do you know that guy travels around Africa? He's an evangelist. He tells people about Christ. And he says, but God gave up on us, Aggie. God gave up on us. He says, no, Papa, God used you in an amazing way. And what's amazing to think about with, with that story is that this father, this biological father, ended up turning back to Christ. He didn't trust that God had wisdom and God had power. But it took a daughter years later coming back to him to show him that. What a great example of God's display of his wisdom and power. And I don't know if you are in here and you're wrestling with something very difficult in your life and you're wondering, God, are you doing the right thing in my life? Are you, and if you're maybe wondering, God, are you even powerful enough to do anything? And let me tell you, friends, God's word says he has all wisdom and all power. So let's respond with praying, with humility, and with faith in his word. Let's pray.